You may want to have that passage in, in, in Luke 10, or at least a, a, a finger there as well. We'll be referring to that at various parts as we uh, look at those verses. That verse, Matthew chapter 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, a wonderful promise. If you're familiar with uh, the Gospels, you may have noticed that Jesus talks a lot about the importance of showing mercy and its twin virtue, forgiveness. Mercy and forgiveness are not quite the same thing, but they are certainly related, aren't they? Mercy is broader than forgiveness. But when you forgive someone, you're showing mercy. But forgiveness goes further. It's deeper, isn't it, than mercy. And as I say, throughout the Gospels, Jesus points to the importance of these virtues in a Christian's life, in a follower of Jesus' life. So just across the page, in chapter 6, after Jesus teaches his disciples the Lord's Prayer, we read, don't we? For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Then in chapter 9 and chapter 12, Jesus quotes the same verse from the Old Testament book of Hosea when he says, go away and find out what this means. I desire mercy rather than sacrifices. Later, In chapter 18, Jesus will tell the parable of the unmerciful servant who is forgiven, isn't he, a huge debt, and then goes and finds one of his fellow servants who owes him a little bit of money, pushes him against the wall, demanding the man pays him. And when he can't pay, throws that man into prison. And the master, when he discovers the situation, calls his servant in and says, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? The servant is handed over to the jailers and Jesus concludes by saying, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers and sisters. How the Gospels have similar words from Jesus and then perhaps most famously of all is the parable we read earlier of the good Samaritan. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replies, the one who had mercy on him, and Jesus says, go and do likewise. And perhaps even clearer are the words towards the ends of Matthew's gospel. Jesus speaks in Matthew 25 of the way in which he will examine humanity on the day of judgment. Do you remember he uses that analogy of the sheep and the goats? He distinguishes between those who have true faith And those who don't, based on the fruit of their lives, their concern for the poor, the homeless, the sick. Remember, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. No wonder Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Showing mercy is not an option for a disciple of Jesus. Again, this Beatitudes highlights it. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
But the challenge of this beatitude is understanding the relationship between the two halves of this beatitude. Because we could read it like this, couldn't we? If I show mercy to others, if I look to be like the Good Samaritan, then because of that, God will show me mercy on the day of judgment. God will open the books on that day, see my life. Yes, see my failing. But I also helped grannies cross the road. Gave my mum a phone call once a week when I was at university. Occasionally gave money to charity. On the basis of that, will God show me mercy? Friends, let me be clear up front. Jesus is not telling us we can be saved by being nice. Not even by imitating the compassion of the Good Samaritan. Even though he clearly tells us to follow that pattern. Instead, Jesus wants us to consider, where does mercy come from? If someone can be described as merciful, where does that impulse within them come? You see, Jesus highlights here a characteristic that confounds the natural laws of our world that can only be truly empowered by the mercy of God itself. Why be merciful to others? Jesus is seeking to humble us to think about that impulse to be merciful so that we will be willing to receive the mercy he gives. So friends, that we love mercy, that we seek mercy, that we live by and out mercy. So we're going to consider three questions, which I hope is, get, help us to understand this beatitude well. We're going to ask the question, where does mercy come from? What does mercy consist of? And then, why be merciful? Why be merciful? So the origin, the nature, and the priority of mercy. So firstly then, the origin of mercy. Where does mercy come from? Back in 2014, the eminent biologist and world's probably most famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, responded over Twitter to a question from a woman who admitted that if she discovered Down syndrome in any future pregnancy, she would be presented with a, quote, real ethical dilemma about whether to abort that baby or not. And Dawkins' words were unequivocal in his response. Abort it. And try again, it would be immoral to bring it into the world if you had a choice. Rather than suggesting it was a difficult choice, Dawkins suggests it's clear-cut, it's obvious. And his tweet received an onslaught of online outrage. Comparisons were made with eugenics and Nazi ideology. Darwin sought, uh, sorry, Dawkins sought to clarify and apologise Pointing out, many parents in this position do take that road, I would add, tragically. But his clarification didn't help. He could have said that his advice would have found hearty approval in the ancient world. Plato thought that in order to be worth rearing, children must be teachable, disposed to virtue, physically fit. If not, Plato suggested parents should dispose of them. 
Aristotle thought that defective children should be exposed, that is, discarded at rubbish tips, abandoned on hillside, thrown down wells or drowned in rivers. In fact, Aristotle suggested that there be a law that no deformed child should be reared. But not just the ancient world. Around the world and down through history, the vast majority of cultures have considered that we're all better off without the weak. In our own society, advanced technology means that recognition and disposal of so-called inferior offspring can happen even earlier, in utero even. But the furore over Richard Dawkins' response points to something that is deep within us. There is an instinct to protect the weak, not eliminate them. Think about this story of the Good Samaritan. Story still permeates our culture. I was in the school assembly the other week. The Good Samaritan parable is a very popular story in school assembly still, isn't it? And no one wants to be known in our society as the one who walked on the other side. No one wants to be known as someone who saw the need and did nothing. And yet, the posture of mercy does not fit with the Darwinian ideas of natural selection. The laws of evolution select the strong and disregard the weak. So it's worth thinking about, is it not? How do you account for mercy? Compassion as human beings. We noted last week it's not the preoccupation of the animal kingdom. So where does mercy come from? You'd expect that I might begin with Jesus, and of course that is right. We could look at the way the birth of Christianity has had a profound impact on the culture of our country, and one of the areas in which you see that is how important charity work is in our country. But I want us to go back further as we think about the origin of mercy, for we need to go back before the birth of Jesus, more fundamental even than the life of Jesus, to the nature of God himself. The origin of mercy, friends, is God himself. God is love, the Bible tells us, and that love does not only extend to the deserving, but to his enemies. Remember those incredible words as Moses asked God to reveal his glory to him? Moses, he asked God, doesn't he, to proclaim him, God to, to proclaim himself in all his brilliance. And Moses presents himself to the Lord on top of Sinai. And we read in Exodus 34, don't we? The Lord came down and stood there with him and proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And he goes on, of course, to say that he deals with justice against the rebellious, which creates this riddle within that that only the work of Jesus at the cross Uh, really resolves but here notice who are you creator God show us your glory and first up God responds the Lord the Lord the compassionate gracious God abounding in love maintaining love forgiving wickedness have you ever noticed 
that as our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebel, their sense of how wrong things have gone is that they sense their own nakedness, don't they? And if we had time, we could talk about how that phrase captures their need on multiple levels. But what happens as they are ejected from the garden? Judgment comes, as God said it would, as they ate from the tree in the garden. But even as he pronounces the curse, we read that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and, his, uh, and, and Eve, and he clothed them. We perhaps see that picture that illustrates the mercy of Christ's work in covering our sins. But that is not the only reason for God's action. Even on that worst of days, God's heart is full of compassion. Humanity now need protecting from a hostile environment. The ministry of mercy is inaugurated by God himself, for he is the origin of mercy. Friends, this is the God we gather to worship today. Sunday by Sunday, the triune God of mercy. If the Lord came down this morning, stood here, he would proclaim his name the same. He does not need to do that because with more than words, he demonstrates that mercy flows from his very heart through the ministry of the Lord Jesus. His son in his life, his death for our sins, his resurrection. He is the origin of mercy. But further... Mercy is so important to us as human beings because, therefore, as the Bible teaching is, it is, as it were, in our DNA. We are images of God. It's not so much that he is like us, but we are like God. And with that precious truth, God gives, you remember, human beings dominion. In a sense, we are slightly more than just being part of creation. In a sense, we are to stand between heaven and earth, commissioned from above to care for that which is below. That commission is reinstated, isn't it, in chapter 2 of Genesis. Tending and keeping the garden of God implies care, developing, helping to flourish. This is so important when we think about what Jesus is saying in this beatitude. Blessed are the merciful. He is not just saying, blessed are the nice people. But do you see, there is something about the action of mercy that finds its source, its origin, in the nature of the God who made us and who made us as images of himself. We talked in the, in the autumn, when we are thinking about what it is to be human, about human beings as enchanted beings, not made according to their kind, but made in God's likeness. And mercy, friends, let me suggest to you, is one of the indicators of that. There is a sense that mercy comes from another realm than this world. Richard Dawkins' conviction might make sense in a world, in, a, in an evolutionary survival of the fittest world where we are, are alone in the universe with no future beyond our days where the value of the human being is no different from that of a mosquito, all a plausible explanation if all you see is all there is. But the very fact that many, and not just Christians, many would object to Dawkins' view about a Down syndrome baby in the womb speaks of a sense of a realm outside the natural, of the supernatural 
If you reckon that there are values like compassion and mercy that are above and beyond the law of natural selection and that they should take precedence in life, do you see? You believe in something beyond the material world. And the Bible demonstrates that the origin of these things is in the Creator who is compassion, who is mercy. So again, to bring it back to our beatitude, given, remember, seen this every time by Jesus in the context of his coming, the beginning of his ministry, his declaration that the kingdom of heaven has come near. The realm of the outside has come near. Those who live with mercy as the currency by which they interact with others have this sense, this intuition of the very way Jesus himself will be in this world and the nature of his kingdom. And the question is how? Because they recognize the need of mercy from above as the only hope for their lives and for this world. We'll expand that in a moment. Does this mean that Jesus is saying that any act of kindness implies that a person is a citizen of the kingdom? No. It's saying to you, if you sense that the measure of any society is how that society treats its weakest members, if you sense that the measure of a person beyond personal achievement is how they treat others, then you are in tune, at least in part, with the anthem of heaven. An anthem from which the roots of your belief come. And the music of that anthem reaches its crescendo in Jesus. He brings the kingdom near and offers you mercy. Offers you mercy. And you might say, why do I need mercy? And so next question, understand the nature of mercy. What is the nature of mercy? What does mercy look like? If Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, then it might be good to ask, what does mercy look like, doesn't it? And we might find it reasonable, straightforward to define. We could look it up in a dictionary. For example, mercy is about an action, a generous action that delivers someone from guilt and from bondage. That is a fine definition. But if we have identified that the origin of mercy is God himself, then surely he defines the extent, the shape, the what does it look like of mercy. To whom should we be merciful? That is the question the expert in the law asks here in Luke chapter 10, isn't it? To Jesus. As verse 29, if you've got that passage in front of you, he seeks to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? And what follows is this famous parable, the Good Samaritan. After the two religious leaders walk past on the other side of the road, the despised Samaritan is moved by compassion to help the beaten man. The first service he rendered to him is his, actual, his, his, his physical presence, doesn't he? He comes alongside. We read, unlike the other two, he went to him. It's the first act of mercy. While others walk past, he was there. He was the man's advocate. He goes further. He provides immediate emergency medical care. He transports him to a place of shelter and covers the costs of the medical care he receives overnight. Finally, he gives a financial gift to pay the man's rent until he's fully recovered or until the Samaritan returns. The parable is a remarkable, wonderful story. 
as I said, beyond the church. People love that story, don't they? But have you considered what it says about what it looks like to, for you and me to love our neighbor? Not just the breadth of those who qualify for your mercy, but also the depth that that mercy would take you. This is not simply text the word give to a four-digit number while you sit cozily on the sofa watching your TV. Do you see? If we have hopes, like the lawyer in this episode, that we might be all right on the day of judgment, that we might inherit eternal life, that we might be justified by our own efforts to be kind and compassionate to others, the benchmark has been set for us all. Go and do likewise. Those two commands sum up how short life should work. Love God, love your neighbor. And Jesus, as he unpacks what love for neighbor looks like, gives this wonderful picture. So that we might think, oh, that there were more people in this world like that. What about me? What about you? We often miss this about this parable. Jesus is seeking to confound the lawyer with a vision of mercy that is so lofty to be impossible. Visualize a leopard changing his spots, as imagine a Samaritan helping a Jew, but nothing else will do. A Hamas terrorist fell among thieves, and an Israeli man who lost his daughter on the 7th of October attacks helped him. Friends, that would not just be an incredible example of mercy, but have you thought about this? That is what the righteous requirement of the law requires of you and me. Perhaps, given what I said earlier, that is what it looks like to reflect God perfectly as those made in his image. If Jesus is saying in this beatitude that those who meet my standards in showing mercy are blessed because they will be shown mercy, do you not see it? Then mercy is out of our reach. Lloyd-Jones puts it like this. If you and I were to be judged strictly on these terms, it is very certain that not one of us would be forgiven and not one of us would ever see heaven. If this passage is to be interpreted in that strict legal manner, forgiveness is impossible, he says. And just think about it. The beatitude also doesn't make sense. Because if you and I were able to show mercy to Jesus' standards, we would be justified by the law. And therefore we wouldn't require mercy. The lawyer comes to Jesus asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Love God and love your neighbor. Jesus replies, and by the way, this is what loving your neighbor looks like. Go and do likewise. Do you have that love? Jesus is asking, are you merciful like that? Jesus' goal was to show the lawyer who believed he was on the right path to eternal life that he was miles away. Being Rather than being spiritually rich, he was bankrupt. Which is, of course, exactly where Jesus begins with these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs 
for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 19th, second half of the 19th century, compared the Beatitudes to a ladder of light. He saw each one rising above and out of the one that comes before. So as we consider the merciful, he says we are speaking of a character trait that is higher than those before, higher than, the person, than that of the person who is poor in spirit or who mourns. Those early Beatitudes, he points out, concern oneself. We recognize our poverty, our feebleness before God. Out of this grows meekness, a sense of humble trust in God who is in control, steadfast in his love. We live with patient faith. We hunger and thirst for a righteousness that we cannot establish, but is the gift of grace and mercy. And Spurgeon's point, by the time we climb the ladder to the blessed and the merciful, it can only be, only be, a product of the realization of our need of mercy and, the and receiving that mercy from God himself. This ladder begins with us seeking spiritual riches in the mercy of God. Our most righteous deeds, says the prophet Isaiah, are like filthy rags, more literally like a menstrual cloth, and they make us like one who is unclean, a street leper in God's sight. Imagine the most unsightly, smelly, decrepit, homeless person, wandering the city in rags, has not much of his mind left, no resource at all, he has nothing to recommend him. That is what we are, all of us, before God, says Isaiah. Perhaps Jesus himself was trying to show the lawyer of his own helpless condition by depicting him as a half-dead man lying by the roadside in need of mercy. And the nature of mercy is that though we are all lying in our own blood, spiritually bankrupt and lost, yet God has provided spiritual wealth for us. He has seen us. Like that good Samaritan had pity upon us, has bandaged our wounds. He is Psalm 103, the God who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Achieved through the one and only man who was ever perfectly spiritually rich before God, Jesus the God-man whose love of neighbor pays for all our sin, covers all our shame and nakedness, clothes us in his beautiful, wonderful righteousness by himself going to the cross. That exchange where we bring him our guilt, our sin, our shame, and he in return, in mercy, clothes us with his own very nature, righteous. That is the nature of mercy, friends. And so perhaps it's best not to ask, can you define mercy? But better, have you tasted it? Do you know your sin? The weakness, even the stench of your best efforts? And have you run to Christ and tasted his mercy? The Christian message, standing in contrast to evolutionary theory, the Christian message is about the sacrifice of the fittest, Jesus, for the survival of the weakest, us. 
Is that how you understand the gospel? He is the one who declares blessed are the merciful. He personifies mercy. He brings mercy. That is what mercy is. Have you tasted it? The priority of mercy. So how are we to understand the relationship in this beatitude? How do the two halves fit together? Here's another story from the Gospels. In Luke chapter 7, a sinful woman washes Jesus' feet with her tears and anoints them with perfume. Remember that story to the horror of the Pharisee named Simon whom Jesus was eating. And Jesus responds by telling a parable about a man who's forgiven a great debt and who loves his creditors more than any other man who, than another man who's forgiven a small debt. And then he sums everything up in one statement. Therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much. But he who's forgiven little loves little. We might struggle to understand that in the same way we can struggle to fit this beatitude together. Is Jesus saying that the woman was forgiven on the strength of her love? Will the merciful receive mercy on the strength of their mercy? But in Luke 7, that last phrase clarifies the meaning. But he who's forgiven little loves little. It is not love, Jesus was saying, that causes forgiveness. It's the other way round. Forgiveness is what causes love. Just so here, it is not our being merciful that stirs God to be merciful to us. No, He is the compassionate and gracious God. We don't stir Him up to be merciful. Rather, receiving His mercy stirs our being merciful. Being merciful is not the ground of your merciful pardon. Being merciful is the proof that you have tasted the mercy of God. Jesus proclaims, blessed are the merciful because they truly, truly know from personal experience the gospel. They grasp, they are sinners saved by grace alone and so are open and generous to the outcasts and the unlovely because spiritually at least, outside of God's mercy, they understand that is what they are. And when you think about it, if someone is unmerciful, they are very unlikely, aren't they, to really think they need mercy. They might think they need help with a few little small things, but not that they are spiritually bankrupt. They have no recognition of their own need of mercy. J.C. Ryle says, on the day, on judgment day, there will be no mercy for the unmerciful because they are unfit for heaven. They would not feel at home and would not know heaven's song. He says they would not value the dwelling place to which mercy is the only title and in which mercy is the eternal song. Not many of us carry cash around anymore. But imagine that I asked you to open your wallets and get out any cash that you had. Each one of you comes up and opens your wallet, shows me the cash, and then I give it back to you. Friends, I'm not asking you to imagine an armed robbery or an episode from Robin Hood. But someone comes up and pours out the context of their wallet, and instead of pounds and pence, 
they produce, I hope I'm saying this right, Nara and Kobo, the currency of Nigeria. I would know, wouldn't I? Fairly certainly, they have, received, they have recently come from there. Perhaps if that is all they had, maybe I would recognize that is where they're from. If I said, go home and get me money, and that is what they brought me, it would suggest, wouldn't it, that Nigeria was their home. Friends, mercy and forgiveness are the currency of heaven. That is the only ground of doing business with God. But if you've done business with him, with Jesus, as you interact with people, as you get your wallet out and do business with them, mercy will be the currency that you trade in. The more you are following Jesus, the more you deal with him on the grounds of mercy, not less, more, the more your dealing with others will be transacted in the currency of mercy. Citizens of that kingdom deal in mercy because in heaven there is no other currency. The verseful know the mercy of the eternal God and realize there is nothing more precious that he has set his love upon you. He is the one who sent his son to rescue you when you'd left for that far-off country, having bad-mouthed home, thinking there was something better out there, and then the money runs out. The money always runs out. And you find yourself in the pigsty. And who comes? Who has come and ransomed, redeemed you, bring you home rejoicing? Only Jesus. He came, there is mercy. Children of the kingdom are lovers of mercy. Love mercy, seek mercy. Live by mercy. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you.